Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Each year, the world's training and simulation community convenes in Orlando for the Inner Service Industry Training, Simulation, and Education Conference, universally known as ITSEC, organized by the National Training and Simulation Association that's part of the National Defense Industrial Association. It is the leading event uh, in its market and a showcase for DOD priorities, as well as an opportunity for industry to showcase uh, its technologies to better train a new generation of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, space, and Coast uh, Guard Guardians. Uh, joining us from the sidelines of ITSEC are Dr. Wes Naylor, the CEO of Helicon Chemical, an innovative company that has developed a way of making rocket motors more energetic. He is a retired United States Navy captain who led the Navy's uh, Naval Air Warfare Center Training and Simulation Division uh, and is also a professor at the University of Central Florida and the founder of the strategic advisory uh, firm, 50 Pound Brains. Uh, and he is joined by our very own producer and the co-host of the Cabas Ships podcast, Chris Cervello, uh, who is also the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm. Gentlemen, thanks very much. Welcome aboard and great to have you on the program. Thanks, Vago. Great to have a chance to speak with you and get all caught up on uh, all things ITSIC and beyond. Hello from uh, sunny but cold Orlando. Chris, what does cold constitute in Orlando? Did, did you guys break the 70-degree mark and everybody's oh, low, in the park? Low 40s uh, this morning uh, with wow. the highs expected Bracing. to be in the low 60s. Yeah. We yeah. truly so, crossed the margin where we had to go even beyond <laughs> socks with flip-flops down here. It is right. indeed cold. <laughs> You know what, though, if anybody's going to kill that look, Wes, it's you. So, uh, you know, I've, I've, I have faith you're, you're going to be rocking it. Uh, just before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. Our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um Wes, I'm going to go to you and start with, uh, and Chris, obviously, get your sense on it. What are the big themes from ITSEC this year, right? I mean, each year there is, are, um, uh, uh, you know, showcase themes. There are also services that are a little bit more out front. This year is the Army's year. Talk to us about what some of the big themes are that tell us about what to expect from this community and what to expect from the DOD and what to expect uh, from the United States Army and the, and the other uh, services as we go into 2024. Well, Vago, I think you're right on there. And obviously, as you said, the Army has the lead service this year. And uh, you know, over the past five to seven years, uh, you know, the Army, with their efforts, uh, with Army Futures Command and everything else, has certainly gone all in on modeling and simulation and how to optimize that uh, for training effect. Uh, it's actually very impressive uh, level of effort they're putting into it. You know, frankly, as someone who's been around the technologies for many years, um, you know, the core technologies just seem to keep improving and evolving. And you kind of get into the uh, proverbial debate about how high end do I need to have or how do I optimize low cost um, devices? Uh, what's the best mix of that? And I think that will always be a function of. But, you know, Chris, certainly join in on this. But I think one of the themes is uh, of this is what are the new enabling technologies? And you know, a couple of things that specifically stood out to me was, say, the use of AI for uh, rapid scenario generation and inject. That's something that's certainly new and holds a lot of promise. 
And uh, also, are there technologies that can build on training resilience? Uh, what lessons did we learn out of COVID, you know, which essentially shut down all training? So that shuts down the production pipeline for all the armed right. services. And and Chris and I saw a couple of interesting technologies around that this week as well. And uh, I want to get to that in a minute. But Chris, what are some of your top line takeaways? It started in the uh, in the opening ceremonies. Um, I was really impressed with Army acquisition uh, leader uh, Doug Bush, uh, who, who I know that you know you've known for years and have talked to. But I mean, you know, he he really hit it that it's about providing higher level fidelity. Um, from a cost saving standpoint. And he said where they've made mistakes in the past is that it's been the cost saving standpoint that has driven this, not the other way around, not going after higher level fidelity training first and then cost saving second. Um, he praised the the group um, for their ability to be able to do both. Um, and then he you know, pointed to what uh, General Flynn is doing out at uh, Army Pacific. And, you know, it matches what um, Admiral Paparo and, and General Cruiser Wilsbach are, are doing out there as well, is that they are now demanding these high fidelity trainers get out to them, right? I remember visiting ITSEC 10 years ago with Admiral Moran, who was really leading this effort. He really pushed the Navy to break away from this idea of um, the the classroom or uh, the schoolhouse, right? Not that those weren't important, but that you had to get this training out to uh, the warfighter where the warfighter is and have it be in the warfighter's environment. Um, and I think 10 years later from when Wes was CEO at NOC TSD to hearing what Mr. Bush said and what others have said, it, it's really starting to come together. And that that was heartening because I, I remember visiting ITSEC for the first time. You know, there were these really big kind of clunky trainers. I mean, it was still eye-watering what they could do. Um, and then you fast forward 10 years later and it's now a PC and a uh, virtual reality headset and the complexity of the scenarios has grown dramatically as we've seen computing power increase over the 10 years. Um, you know, Vago, every Monday you talk about HII as our sponsor. And one of the reads that you give is, you, you know, their live virtual, what they do in the live virtual environment. And I mean, you can really see the complexity, whether it's HII or others that do live virtual training. Um, not, not only have they shrunk the technology, but the complexity of this, of the tactical and operational level scenarios that uh, warfighters and evaluators are able to participate in and then be netted across not only uh, a room of trainers, but you can be in different theaters and doing this training. So that's what really stood out to me in, in addition to um, the enablers that, that Wes talked about. I mean, just the the bringing in of dual use technology, something as simple as a high definition television screen or um, a globe or a hologram that we see in other parts of our life is now so much embedded and integrated into the type of training um, that the military is using. I, I would say though that, and, and, you know, Mr. Bush talked about it. I mean, it really has to be a commitment, right? These can't be toys. This can't be, you, you know, where we're enamored with this new technology. We really have to make it part of um, our day-to-day -day training regiment. We have to resource to it. We have to make it something that is normal and not boutique. Uh, and, and that's what this uh, organization is really trying hard to do through the ITSEC conference, but also through you know the work they do throughout the year. Indeed, right? I mean, people have a tendency of thinking about this as a one-time event, but just like it's for AUSA, 
uh, or Navy League or uh, the Air Force Association or Air and Space Forces Association, I should, I should say, there's year-long uh, events. Um, Wes, let me uh, go back to you because I do want to get your sense, right? I mean, we have some supply chain news and uh, and some cyber issues to talk about, uh, and also the passing of Admiral Rob, who was uh, such a, uh, a power, a force behind making it sec uh, what it is in the National Training and Simulation Association, the force that it was. Let me get your sense on, you know, you you've spent your time sort of as a as a strategic mind and always looking at where things are going to be five to ten years from now. Uh, so you're not actually responsive, but you're actually aligning yourself for the future. If if we look at what we want to achieve, as Chris just said, right, and, and the revolution we've seen in training and simulation, a lot of it driven by uh, commercial gaming technology, let's be honest about that, but also increases in computing power. The DoD is trying to create joint synthetic uh, simulation and training environments where we could do large scale exercising and training to be able to uh, practice war fighting concepts outside the prying eyes of uh, our adversaries. Um, we're trying to use training and simulation as a tool in the you know, CJADC2, the Joint Coalition All-Domain Command and Control effort, which is a priority. How do you see all of these efforts aligning? Because to some who are looking at this from the outside, they don't see maybe as much coordination and maybe as much progress as you're seeing as somebody who sits a little bit closer to the sideline. Where are we going as the DOD tries to create a completely different architecture, not just to command and control, but actually to prepare, to plan. I mean, we're we're looking at training and simulation capabilities that are extending into the logistics, and you know, it, it's this isn't just on the sharp end of it. We're using these technologies and training tools kind of across the entire piece. Give us a sense on how all of these sort of tracks are aligning in a way maybe that they haven't in the past. Yeah, no, that's it's a great point and uh, certainly worthy of a lengthy, lengthy discussion. Um, you know, to enable training at distance or, you know, one of the things I always like to talk about is what you're really trying to do is move knowledge and wisdom to the point of use. You know, can you take a, a young sailor, airman, marine um, a, who has not had years and years of experience and somehow connect wisdom and knowledge for them to do their job better? at the tip of the spear. And what that requires is connectivity. And, uh, you know, certainly that is a challenge that we're still evolving on is, you know, the networks themselves and how do we effectively use uh, commercial networks and protocols in a more expeditious manner, yet comply with the very real needs around, say, cyber supply chain, because, whether it's on the training side, the operational side, or the logistics side, when we link all that together, that induces potential risk if we're not knowing what nodes are in there, what pieces are in there. You know, certainly we've seen many cases from individual weapon systems to communications length that our adversaries are going after. So that needs to continue to be a focus, knowing the provenance of these communication nodes, the software that's in the tools that we're using. And I don't think we can overstate the need to do that um, efficiently and effectively going forward. But even as I was arguing 10 years ago, as Chris knows, our partners in the commercial sector care about these things as well. You know, 
Citibank and Amazon move trillions of dollars of commerce every day, and they need those networks secure too. So how do we effectively learn from their protocols and use them appropriately to ensure the safety and uh, protection of the information from not only a tactic standpoint, but you know, moving goods, moving ammunition, moving the things we need to make the warfighters enabled to execute. And I think that's one of the areas where we we still have a lot uh, that we can gain from the commercial sector. And, you know, frankly, if you watch the entire CMMC, CMMC rollout, getting the regulations and the guidance around that continues to be a challenge. So we don't want to pen ourselves in in a way we can't use the advanced technologies. We just need to smartly go about ensuring we have knowledge of what's in those supply chains so that we can reduce the risk of them. Um, I'm going to come back to you in just a second. Chris, uh, you get a lightning answer because I'm going to go back to uh, Wes as CEO in a minute. I want to piggyback on that because I think that's really important. I mean, Wes really nailed the the cyber point. I mean, you, you know, if you're Doug Bush and or you're General Flynn and you're you're making this progress in the training uh, and simulation environment, you don't want to create a whole host of other problems, you know, while at the same time, uh, you know, solving one, right? So it, you, you don't want to be playing whack-a-mole, right? So I've fixed my training problem, but now I have a, a bigger cyber problem because I've connected a bunch of dual use stuff that I haven't worked through. And, and Wes, you know, rightly says um, you, you, you've really got to focus on the, the cyber issues. And we've started to see um, when we talk about enablers, we've started to see at ITSEC um, more discussion about not just using uh, training and simulation to practice how you would, you know, defend forward or do offensive cyber operations, but there is more of a discussion of using cyber um, tools to protect this training environment. In addition to that, and Wes mentioned it at the start, you're also seeing kind of a, a um, some thought on um, health, right? So when you put people in these training environments, no different than when you put them on a bridge or in a cockpit or in a submarine, um, you, you bring a lot of germs to bear. Um, and so if you're going to use these uh, training and simulation advances to, um, you know, save time, save money um, in an operational context, you also don't want to be creating a Petri dish that uh, puts your folks at risk. I mean, on the high end, obviously, there's the pandemic. On the low end, it's everything from the, you know, the common cold or whatever virus may be bouncing around. And so I was also heartened to see a number of different health technology there. Um, one company that we, you know, spent a little bit of time with was lit thinking um, they're using far uvc light and they were talking about how to integrate that far uvc you know sort of using the light to clean the air um right. while you're doing the training i mean and, and there's lots of other companies that are doing this so you know this is an opportunity not just to train the warfighter but to train how you think about these warfighting environments um to uh to kind of perfect it when it gets to uh, the battlefield let me uh, go uh wes uh to get your take on uh the administration uh on uh, correct me if i'm wrong i believe that was on monday president biden announced um uh, new actions to strengthen America's supply chains, lower costs for families and secure key sectors. That's how the uh, White House uh, defined it. Um, 
And a, a lot of questions, right? I mean, it's great that we're having that focus on supply chains, uh, which are one of the reasons why, for example, a lot of manufacturing stuff is 36 months, you know, to delivery. A lot of that is supply chain related. Uh, you're working uh, at a, uh, an industrial company uh, that is bringing uh, some novel technology that, that makes, would make, um, you know, existing products better. Um, but walk us through a little bit on what you thought of the supply chain guidance and its curious omission of cyber, uh, right? I mean, we had Admiral, uh, retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery join us. And he said, you know, he was a little bit concerned that, you know, that the, the cloud, for example, hasn't been designated critical infrastructure. Uh, and he was a little bit concerned about that. Give, give us your sense on the supply chain directive from the White House and the, the exclusion maybe of cyber and what that means. No, I, you know, great points and you know, this is, obviously a good crossover to talk about this, you know, as we were talking just a few minutes ago. And when you start linking all these things together, that's a great enabler uh, for technology and moving knowledge and wisdom to the point of need. But you have to be able to proactively uh, protect those communications in those environments. And, you know, certainly when you talk cyber, most people, as Chris noted, you know, kind of it gravitate towards this offensive capability. But knowing what's in your networks, knowing where the vulnerabilities are, having appropriate protocols to uh, do not just patching, but proactively know where the risks are going to be. That's a key component of this. And I, I think sometimes, you know, maybe it's just assumed and maybe that's why you don't get the call out, but it needs the call out. It, it needs to be a part of the planning. It needs to be a part of the requirements because, frankly, industry re you know, responds to requirements and program managers respond to requirements. If it's not called out as a requirement, it doesn't get funded. If it doesn't get funded, the program managers can't pay for it. You know, so what's the good of having a great capability, but you can't put it online because you can't protect it on the network? Um, you know, and that's certainly one side of it. Obviously, you know, through our work at Helicon, you know, we're in the midst of where the breakdowns in the industrial base and the supply chain have been in relationship to munitions and energetics, you know, for the past 20 years, that is a portion of the supply chain and the defense industrial base that has just been allowed to atrophy over a 20 year period of time. And when you burn through 17 to 20 years of inventory uh, supporting uh, allied nations, that becomes critical very quickly. So putting the focus on that obviously important. It's, it's great to do the training. It's great to be able to have the connectivity. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to have a uh, F-35 or an F-18 with an AMRAM on the end of it that's able to reach out and touch the opponent or, you know, a 155 millimeter howitzer shell to go down range. But at the end of the day, kinetic force is necessary. And, you know, you can't address one without addressing the other because there are trade secrets, IP involved in the manufacture of all that, and that needs to be secured from a cyber point of view. So they are completely interdependent. And as I said, I think it's just that folks who are not intimately familiar with the acquisition and requirements process sometimes neglect to see that you have to make that specific call out in order for that requirement to be enacted and funded. So, you know, certainly I think it would be advisable that we call out that defensive cyber piece in the supply chains. 
let me, uh, Chris, I want to uh, go to you, but I just have one quick follow-up for, for Wes. Right? I mean, one of the concerns has been that, you know, um, smaller companies and Helicon is a, is a startup. It's a smaller company that hopes to make a big impact uh, in, in, in the future. And we'll get to that in a minute is a concern that some of these smaller companies, these highly innovative companies sort of underinvest in cybersecurity. And so whether it's China or Russia or North Korea or anybody else manages to crack into them, uh, ransomware continues to be a problem, even for the biggest uh, companies, uh, as we're seeing, right? I mean, Boeing got hit uh, in, in a um, uh, you know, problematic uh, way. As the CEO of a small company, do you think that the focus for small companies is changing and saying, look, our most precious thing is our IP. We have to do everything to protect it, even if it means spending money, given that sometimes smaller companies would make take the gamble. It's like, well, you know, I, I can get away with it. I think I'm safe enough. Do you, do you think that, you know, you and your compatriots at your tier of the industry are looking at this and saying, this is where we have to take a stand and we have to defend this technology that's core to our existence? You know, Bago, I think, um, Actually, I'll just take a little turn on that. I think many of the innovative companies don't come from necessarily a DOD background. So maybe that's just not something that was a part of their DNA growing up. You know, our firm, uh, you know, very deeply uh, uh, occupied by people who worked on both the government side and the industry side over the years. So we've been inculcated in that culture. Um, you know, it's just a cost of doing business that we know you have to do and we take very seriously and, you know, we'll make the proper investments in that. And I think it's just one of those translational issues for some of the new firms that are trying to come in from the commercial side who have just, you know, they obviously want to protect their IP, but haven't thought about it in the same way of protecting it from foreign adversaries, as opposed to, uh, commercial competition and how you do that effectively. So I don't think it's a lack of a desire to do it or a thought of, well, we just don't want to do it because of cost. It's either a lack of knowledge about it because they haven't worked in that domain before. But again, uh, you know, this is for larges and smalls. If you call it out as a requirement and you allow for the firm, small, large, or otherwise, um, to work that into their bids and proposals, you're obviously going to get a quicker pickup for it. I mean, industry responds to demand signals via requirements and funding. And if you put an unfunded mandate out there, the program manager can't support it and the, you know, the industrial base can't support it. So it's, a, it's really a pretty easy equa equation. If this is important, you make it a requirement, you fund the requirement, you're going to get the result. Right. Chris, uh, anything you want to add to that? I'll just bridge the two thoughts, Vago, because as I as I attended it second, then as I read the um, the you know the president's uh, fact sheet and guidance on uh, on supply chain, there there is technology um, that can really help us meet the goals, the smart goals um, that that we want. Right on the on the DoD side, it's to improve warfighting readiness. Uh, when we talk about supply chain, it's to make sure that we have whether it's for the consumer or for the national security of the country that we have reliable supply chains that meet the needs of, of those customers. And I, I think that there is a lot of technology that the government is still not taking full advantage of. And whether we call it cyber um, in the sense of a protective context, um, like you talk about with CMMC, or whether you talk about it as data um, in terms of helping to illuminate 
um, where your uh, pluses and minuses are um, for decision makers, figuring out how to bring all of the resources that we have to bear instead of sort of arbitrarily throwing money at this. I mean, we're starting to see within the organizations uh, in government that they're doing a better job. But as a whole of government, you, you know, we, we've seen an AI strategy. We've seen a cyber strategy. I'd love to see a really comprehensive data strategy that that helps illuminate um, the problems and the resources for decision makers. Um, and, you know, this supply chain discussion is kind of the latest uh, attempt that really is missing that. And you just wonder when that's going to come. I couldn't agree with you more uh, on that. And we've, uh, uh, Chris, uh, as you and the audience know, spent a lot of time discussing that, but that's absolutely uh, critical because it sometimes doesn't seem like a lot of these things we have the kind of strategy or at least as clearly articulated as we should and couldn't agree more with uh, Mark Montgomery, right? The cloud is critical infrastructure. It's where really our data uh, increasingly resides uh, and it's uh, surety and security are absolutely critical. Um, Wes, uh, first, uh, my deepest sympathies on the passing of Jim Robb, uh, Golden Eagle, uh, Rear Admiral, um, one of the first six pilots uh, selected uh, to fly the F-14A, uh, was on the first uh, uh, F-14 uh, East Coast F-14 deployment uh, aboard uh, Big John, uh, the John F. Kennedy, uh, and and just somebody who was just such a critical driving force uh, behind uh, both the National Training and Simulation Association, but also uh, ITSEC. Uh, sadly, Admiral Rob uh, passed away uh, a couple of weeks uh, before ITSEC, uh, and um, our hearts, hearts uh, go out to his family. Uh, and, and certainly he was somebody who always made time, uh, for me and for us. Uh, and I always, uh, managed to learn, uh, an enormous amount, uh, interacting with them. Give us your remembrances of, uh, a man who is just great, uh, aviator, a great war fighter, a great sailor, uh, but also, uh, somebody who was just, uh, a really, uh, good and decent man. Thanks for, um, you know, taking the time to uh, acknowledge all of uh, Admiral Rob's contributions, uh, not only to uh, uh, NTSA and the training community, but to the Navy and sailors at large. I mean, I was very fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time with Admiral Rob over the past 15 years or so. Uh, you know, he is just, you know, he was a sailor sailor. Uh, he cared uh, in uniform and out of uniform about how we would, enable our folks to do their business in the most effective, safest way possible. So at the end of the deployment, they could return home to their families, uh, job well done, uh, everybody coming home and with all their fingers and all their toes and, you know, being able to carry out the mission of our, our country. Uh, you know, he certainly took NTSA to a whole another level. I mean, just was always thinking forward about the next big thing, the black swan, you know, the war on the floor where we brought those technologies there and actually showcased them in a way that had never been done before. Uh, he, he left an indelible mark, uh, not only professionally, but personally on everyone he interacted with. And, uh, you know, certainly I'll miss him. Uh, NTSA will miss him. And, uh, he is leaving some mighty big flight boots for uh, someone to fill, whoever uh, the uh, selection team uh, decides to bring in as the next president of uh, NTSA. But, 
you know, he's truly one of those folks who you, you say, uh, you know, you know, fair winds and following sea shipmate. Uh, you, you did, you did well for, for all of us. So uh, we'll certainly miss him. Uh, I mean, I, I just think it's, uh, and Chris, I'm going to give you a, a, a minute uh, if you want to uh, address this, but I think if you look at his bio and the sheer number of things he managed to do, that uh, is, was just, uh, just an incredible career, right? He wasn't just sort of, you know, he, he went to air force aggressor training. He was a top gun uh, instructor. He, he uh, did coalition war fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, commanded at sea, uh, was, you know, in the SS, you know, the CNO's uh, strategic studies group, you know, I mean, it's just a, just an amazing, just an amazing career, just, you know, even before he got to uh, NTSA. Uh, anyway, Chris? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say that it, it's another reminder that individuals matter. It's one thing to have great technology. It's one thing to have great ideas, but you you really need a, a zealot, a, a believer, um, a leader, for people to get behind. Um, and, you know, the fact that he was such an accomplished warfighter and then pushed so hard for what maybe um, warfighters initially were skeptical about in, in the training and simulation uh, business. Um, I, I think we would not be where we are today had it not been for the type of person and the passion that uh, Admiral Rob uh, de demonstrated. So uh, he, as Wes said, he he will certainly be missed. And uh, boy, you, you we really got to get the the next selection right so that all his hard work, um, you know, can continue. Uh, indeed, uh, rookie will be uh, will be deeply missed. Uh, and we extend our condolences again to his family. Uh, Wes, we've got about a half a minute or so. Give us a quick update on where Helicon stands. Uh, you guys uh, are, uh, you know, have been in the testing mode. Um, you know, you guys uh, uh, produce a, a innovative new binder uh, that allows the same chemical composition of existing motors to get uh, 20 or even 30% more range for the same size or have a smaller weapon achieve the same range at a time when we're trying to outstick our adversaries. Talk to us a little bit about where you guys are in Helicon's uh, development testing, uh, right? I mean, the Navy and the Air Force we're testing. Anyway, bring us up to speed on where you guys are. We are often restricted in the exact results and everything, but uh, we are working with uh, both our Navy and Air Force partners uh, to be able to uh, do a little bit broader release on the information, but uh, we we have just had some tremendous successes uh, that we will be uh, pushing information out on in the very near future in both conventional rocketry and uh, for hypersonics. And uh, we very happy to uh, see that we worked uh, hand in hand with the Navy to crack a technology issue that they've been working on for 20 years, uh, that the testing has come out on that. And uh follow-on testing with the Air Force that we're doing right now uh, continues to be great. So uh, that is enabling us, as was our uh, plan and mandate, uh, to really come in partnership with DOD and industry to be the open architecture for energetics uh, solution. It's always been our plan and our talks with leadership from Ms. Shu on down uh, that we are coming in partnership with the Department of Defense to be an enabler across the entire spectrum. Uh, we are, you know, an independent small company who works with everybody. And uh, that's our business plan going ahead. And uh, the success that uh, we've been having uh, is now well known by all the industry partners. And uh, it's going to be an exciting year ahead and uh, really pushing out uh, 
specific results on specific weapon systems across the next 12 to 18 months. Wes, uh, thanks very much for joining us. And Chris, uh, thanks for joining us. Fairwinds following Seas West. Uh, and uh, certainly wish you all the best for the holidays and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Vago. Thanks.